Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. on biotechnology and all of the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulda. I'm a professor at the University of Florida. And this week, we're going to talk about a novel application of biomolecules. And we're going to be speaking with two representatives of the company Carver. That's C-A-R-V-E-R, named after the uh, scientist George Washington Carver, with an extra R at the end. So C-A-R-V-E-R-R. And today we're speaking with Vishal Buyan, who's the CEO and founder of Carver, and Dr. Ellen Jorgensen, who's the chief science officer and co-founder of the company. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having us. Yes, thanks so much for having us, Kevin. Yeah, I was really excited to have you on because we don't do enough of um, discussion on this podcast about applications of biomolecules and ways that they may be used in novel ways. And uh, we, most of the things are how do we innovate a plant or an animal or medicine uh, without a whole lot of an application. So I was really excited to talk to you today. So let's start out with the big problem. What is the major problem that Carver seeks to solve? Um, well, Kevin, you know, this is uh, really just a trend as well, which is, you know, our supply chains, especially in food and agriculture, are becoming a lot more complex. Um, both, you know, geographically and then kind of with the nodes within these, these systems. And with that complexity becomes, you know, vulnerabilities. So the problem that we're trying to solve is kind of transparency in the supply chain and in doing so, uh, improving, you know, security um, and kind of making us more robust to any sort of um, uh, vulnerability or any sort of issues that could, could crop up. Well, let's talk a little bit about what that means. Is it really an issue with, say, um, commingling or um, you know contamination from some outside product in something that's supposed to be a bona fide quality or some sort of a standard? Yeah. So there's 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 kind of two major issues here. One is uh, let's say foodborne illness or things that are just that just sort of happen, uh, and then the other one is being you know uh, vulnerabilities being exploited by bad actors. So you know things like food fraud, which actually affect about, you know, 10% of everything you eat in the grocery store, up to 10%, uh, and cost companies around $40 billion a year. Um, so you've got these these two kind of big factors. Um, on the on the, the health side of it, uh, foodborne illnesses and things uh, lead to recalls, which can be, you know, two to three times a lo- uh, wider and broader than they need to be. So, you know, that costs companies a lot more money um, than are actually necessary. And a good example of that is something like Chipotle's uh, uh, lettuce recall a few years ago, where you know they've got to recall a huge region uh, of where their lettuce comes from, as opposed to just sort of pinpointing uh, exactly where that 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 susceptible crop uh, originated from. Uh, and then on the on the food on the food fraud side of things, um, that can take a couple of different forms as well, because. If, if bad actors are adulterating, you know, the products that we buy every day, that also introduces a, a number of health concerns as well. 
Uh, and one example of that could be, you know, honey, which gets a lot of attention, actually. It's not a, a massive problem there. There are a lot bigger ones, but honey's obviously, you know, incorporating a lot of our food products. Uh, and bad actors, you know, adulterate that honey with things like corn syrup and uh, rice syrup and also introduces things like, you know, antibiotics that are banned in this country uh, and all of that stuff sort of flows into our food system. Well, yeah, that was one I was thinking about was honey in terms of adulteration and you know, loss of authenticity of the product. But you said it's 10 percent, you know, pretty high amount. What are what's another good example of something that is frequently adulterated that the consumer may not catch? Uh, so some other of the big ones are, are cheese. Like, so Parmesan cheese has uh, it got a lot of kind of uh, adulteration issues. Uh, olive oil is another really big one. Um, there can be, you know, meat. Uh, meat adulteration uh, so it really kind of runs the gamut um, and it affects so 10% uh, should kind of be clarified here with a caveat which is you know it can affect even certain uh, base ingredients of other products as well right so honey for example may not just be the honey in the bottle but the honey that's used in in some of the other kind of end products um, so it, it really does touch a lot of different things um, even uh, this is a new one that I heard of recently which is high-end wines uh, also have a big uh, adulteration and, and kind of counterfeit problem. So you're seeing all these, uh, it's really organized crime that's, that's, that's operating in these, in these kind of shady industries. Um, uh, but it definitely affects us all. It's something I'm hearing about more and more. And when you mentioned olive oil and wine, it brought to mind recent stories that I had heard. But the other side of this was that food safety side. And is it really a issue where, uh, somebody who's playing by the rules and getting their bacterial counts measured on their food uh, is putting food into a supply chain correctly, but then someone in that chain is bringing in product from somewhere else that may not have had the same standards. Is is that what we're looking at? Yeah, that's, that, that's a lot of it, right? So you've got a lot of middlemen and, and, and distributors and redistributors. It's a very kind of fragmented um Picture in a lot of different supply chains, you know, especially in commodities and agriculture, um, because they're just a lot of this is happening, you know, uh, in in developing nations as opposed to here in the U.S. So you've got customers that say, "Hey, listen," uh, or sort of middlemen that say, "You know, if we can, you know, capture an extra twenty or thirty percent margin by you know taking out this real product and, and substituting it, you know, that's something we'll do all day long until." you know, they get caught or whatever. And that, and that's the case in a lot of these different products. Okay. So I'll be the devil's advocate and say, well, you know, everybody's making a buck here and agricultural producers don't make enough. And the folks in the supply chain, you know, aren't exactly raking it in, I guess, but you know, so what is really the ultimate effect here? And maybe even from the consumer perspective. Uh, and I think, I think this all ends up being around recalls. So, I mean, we pay consumers, if you think about it, we're paying for that that adulteration one way or the other. Um, I forget what the stat is, but it's something like around a cent of every dollar we spend at the grocery store uh, actually goes to addressing this problem. So that means we're paying we're paying in terms of higher product cost for these overbroad recalls, which could have been uh, averted, or the you know the loss of, of product. So it actually affects us um, kind of on the bottom line. And, and then not to mention health costs, sorry. Uh, so like, you know, uh, foodborne illness, for example, or any of these kinds of things, they cost uh, you know, billions of dollars a year or tens of billions. Um, and that's in kind of lost productivity, uh, health, you know, uh, recalls, obviously, as I mentioned, 
uh, and other sort of kind of soft costs like that. So it is kind of a growing intangible uh, problem as well. Well, the other one that uh, that you didn't mention, just maybe I see from my perspective, is that when you have a recall, then it permanent it almost permanently taints the industry that recall happened at. In other words, a few years ago, there was uh, some bad salsa. They said, oh, well, the tomatoes were from Florida and the industry crashed overnight. And it turns out that it was actually some peppers that came from California. So, you know, it was, they, they totally got it wrong. But now even people today will say, well, you know, if those tomatoes came from Florida, they had safety issues or had issues there. And it really does affect an industry. And so that, you know, that's another really important part of why we need to have these active measures in the supply chain. Yeah, and, and, and that, that that sort of branding, I mean, Chipotle is a phenomenal example of this. I mean, I still talk to people today that are worried about eating a Chipotle, which is, in, in my opinion, ridiculous. Um, and, in you know, this, it doesn't even need to be food fraud or um, or sort of this, this kind of health concerns. There's even a, a demand for transparency around, like, sustainability and, and the different certifications as well, right? So, Palm oil is something that we're super interested in right now because you've got a really complicated supply chain and on the, the sort of downstream uh, customers, the companies like L'Oreal and Unilever and companies that use palm oil in you know, 50% of all of their products, they want, and, and it's being demanded by the, the end customer as well, uh, a more sustainable uh, kind of base material. So they want palm oil that's sustainable and not you know leading to climate change and know deforestation the problem is is the sort of uncertified palm oil so the non-sustainable stuff and the regular stuff is identical there's almost no way to determine which is coming from you know which which uh plantation or which mill and so what ends up happening is that the certified palm oil uh has you know the, the way they certify that is using all this satellite imagery and sort of manual checks and they make it about 20 to 30 percent uh, more costly than the non-certified stuff. So you've got all this demand for certified sustainable palm oil, but nobody can really, nobody wants to buy it because it's too expensive and it ends up getting mixed together back with the other stuff. And that's sort of kind of how we uh, kind of position our product, which is, look, you can get this really granular um, transparency in your supply chain without really uh, blowing up your cost of goods. Um, and, and, and keeping that really and, and, oper- and us operating in that very tight margin. Um, so that sort of plays again to your, your, um, your remarks about, uh, about branding and, and the importance of that. Well, this is really cool. I mean, the idea of transparency throughout the supply chain, that consumers receiving an authentic product, that they understand what it is and where it came from, you know, you're getting what you paid for. Uh, it, it sounds like a really perfect place for application of some sort of a, uh, you know, molecular barcode or some sort of a nano, uh, I guess I would say nano barcode, right? Some sort of signature that you could used to trace that. And so uh, my understanding is that's exactly what you did. Could you tell me a little bit more about that signature? Well, I'm super excited we found a new use for existing DNA information storage technology. Uh, You mentioned barcoding. That's one way of talking about it. Um, Our unique approach is to use combinations of proprietary probiotics as biomarkers to track and trace. And um, The advantage of this is probiotics can be safely added to foods, and the amounts that you have to add are unbelievably minute, one part in 10,000. 
Yeah, so this is an excellent prelude to the technology. So adding probiotics to the to the mix. So and so we're speaking with Vishal Bouyan and Dr. Ellen Jorgensen from the Carver from Carver Inc. And they're talking to us about how you can have more reliability and transparency within the supply chain by adding molecular signatures or cellular signatures to products. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment. Tune into the podcast on Saturday, August 17, 2019. It's the 200th episode of the Talking Biotech Podcast. One day after Elvis Death Day, more guests sharing their solutions for people and the planet. Gene editing to cure animal disease. Food therapies for cancer and viral disorders. Next generation crop technologies for sustainable farming. CRISPR has died. Screening out of the gate with new technologies in the race to feed 10 billion people. Hydrogen crops, less resource dependence, fewer pesticides, and more sustainability. Biotechnology. Covering disinformation that generates fear, uncertainty, and doubt. That is impeding technology for reaching the industrialized world farmer and the food insecure. Saturday. Saturday, August 17, 2019. The 200th episode of the Talking Biotech Podcast. TalkingBiotechPodcast.com and so we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking today with Vishal Bouyan and Dr. Ellen Jorgensen from the from Carver Inc. And they've come up with novel ways to ensure product fidelity and transparency within a supply chain. And we spoke earlier about the problem of adulteration and how some of the popular consumer products are adulterated with maybe not as high quality products or products that can lend in the food safety. And Dr. Jorgensen was starting to tell us about about how they've solved this before. And you mentioned that they're probiotic additives. Could you tell us any more about what that really means in terms of a probiotic? Well, probiotics are beneficial microbes. And there are many of them that are sold over the counter today. for human health, they're also added to animal feed, and they've even started um, making and using probiotics for plants. So these are these are practices that are already in place in the agricultural industry, and so in a way we can piggyback our technology on top of those and come up with new proprietary probiotics, combinations of probiotics with unique DNA signatures that will allow us to then track and trace particular lots of product. Yeah, that's super cool. So if I bought some wine that I was maybe suspicious about, you know, its its actual origins or how it was doing, you know, where it came from or its content, uh, we could essentially, would it be the kind of thing that you would culture that and obtain a larger sample of the microbes and then just sequence some ribosomal RNA and you know what it is? No, it's not even that complicated. this would be more of a, a DNA barcoding situation. So you would actually, you know, there are four letters in DNA, G, A, T, and C. And it turns out that if you have those letters in a series, 
by the time you get to about 20 letters, you can have a signature that's practically unique. And so a very short signature can be detected in a number of different ways that, um, that have been developed. Uh, for example, there's some really interesting tests that are now being used in sub-Saharan Africa that require minimal sample handling and minimal equipment. And they were originally worked out for diagnostics, but they can also be used for other things, including detecting minute amounts of microbes and products. So the sequence that you're targeting for detection, is that a synthetic sequence or a naturally occurring one? Well, we could actually use both because information in DNA is information. Okay, so you're, um, uh, you're using uh, information that really is a signature of a specific microbe. So if you have a specific probiotic microbe, if you, uh, for instance, have you know, some sort of whatever it is, lactococcus, whatever you're looking for, you know a very specific part of it that would only be in that and not be likely to be found uh, in, you know, in, say, food naturally. Well, this is the definition of a DNA barcode, and it's not even a question of whether it would be found in food in general naturally. It just might not be found in that particular food, but it would be something that would be perfectly safe because it was in other foods. Yeah, because it's already a probiotic. So these things are already approved or at least are not something that's regulated. Is that how it works? Well, they're considered generally regarded as safe. That's a category that FDA has for um, food ingredients that have passed muster with them. The other thing is we're talking about a very minute amount, one part in 10,000. Yeah, and so one in 10,000, you could still detect very easily with common DNA tests, but probably would, uh, but it wouldn't be something that you would notice at all inside the product, which is a brilliant idea. So how do you test for uh, authenticity? Well, you would have a specific combination of DNA information con con contained in the probiotics that a specific um, producer would have in their product, and you would just test for that with specific tests at the other end. And, and the test would be, as I said before, some of these super sensitive tests for particular um, DNA sequences, as we call them, that have been well worked out for sensitive diagnostics and, and other purposes. I see. So it still would be something like PCR, where you would attempt to just identify that sequence based on specificity and the primers you would use, something like that. Yes. You, you, it's not like you're sending it out for next generation sequencing, which could get pretty expensive pretty quickly. This is you have uh, a known signature and a test that is specific to detect that signature. And uh, there, there, there are things beyond PCR that are even more rugged, more simple that have been developed. So, yeah, well, I guess the, the, the part of this where it maybe doesn't make sense, where it starts to disconnect from me is that, okay, somebody who has a good high-end product would spike in this product and then you could detect if it's the same throughout. But what if they adulterated it with 20% well, of something else? How would you know? Well, then we probably would use PCR, and there's such a thing as quantitative PCR. 
Yeah, so you'd be able to actually say how much of the product, are you detecting 100% of what should be there uh, in that product? And if you're getting back 50%, it would tell you there may be opportunity for adulteration, at which time you could look at that a little bit deeper, right? Well, well, QPCR can go down to a few percents, like 3%. So it's it's very sensitive detection of, of... quantity. Yeah, so just for listeners that aren't familiar with the techniques, PCR is the, you think of this as the uh, connecting the criminal to the um, little bits of DNA on a licked envelope or the back of a postage stamp. If, if, if anyone can remember what a postage stamp is, <laughs> but like, let's stay off of a straw or a cigarette butt or something, you can detect, or the end of a human hair, you can match a criminal to a crime because of the ability to amplify discrete sequences in DNA that match the, the two together. And in this case, the probiotic uh, microbes, which are considered safe for consumption have discrete signatures that can be detected downstream and you can do it in a quantitative way which means you can't just tell yes no presence absence you can measure how much is there and that's a really powerful technology that it really um, understand that uh, is being used in this particular approach and so are these uh, products being used widely right now for a variety of different products we're consuming so uh, right now we're, we're we've done some sort of test pilots and we're just scaling up with some kind of larger food companies uh, in terms of running those pilots, um, and that runs the gamut of, of different types of crops and different types of products. So we're sort of in the phase of big companies seeing the value in this and saying, "Hey, how many different products can this work work in?" Um, and kind of where is our our kind of first priority. Uh, issues in our supply chain where we want to start testing this out. Okay, and I guess the other big question that came to my mind, and I, I, you know, when I first learned of your company and your approach and what you were doing, is why not just use a synthetic piece of DNA, you know, rather than have to introduce a microbe? Just take a piece of DNA that's a couple hundred base pairs long that maybe forms a nice stable hairpin, you know, folds back on itself, and then look for that with some sort of detection method and get around the whole issue because DNA, we eat it every day. That seems like that would be a much easier approach. The the major issue with that is uh, just durability. So if you think about, let's just take honey, for example, uh, just the acidity of the honey would, would sort of degrade that DNA. Um, or if you take some of these other crops and commodities, you know, where they're being, where they're being produced or where they're being stored isn't ideal conditions, right? You've got UV, you've got heat, uh, moisture, all these different factors um, that can make that uh, kind of unstable. Oh, I see. And do you think that consumers would actually pay more to, ha- if you came out and said, there's a probiotic in here that may enhance digestion, you know, who knows, but um, but also ensures the authenticity of your product. Is there value in that, do you think? I think the value, I, I think, I mean, I think consumer demand for transparency is, is clear right now. And I think it's growing, uh, especially as, you know, with as, con- as consumers like millennials uh, sort of get older and start having to feed their families. I think this is something that's top of mind for a lot of people. Um, and I don't think it'll affect their price, uh, their bottom line. And I think that's, that's kind of the niche that we're filling, which is this is transparency, not at a massive premium. Uh, and I do, yeah, I do think, you know, uh, over time, these are these, whether it's our technologies or just the industry itself, um, these are going to be a lot more important, um, filtering all the way down to the consumer. And we're already seeing it. 
you know, a lot of brands now, um, they sort of uh, market themselves as extremely transparent. Uh, there's a cereal company now uh, that we feed our, our kids where you can trace every box back to a farm, you know, using using their barcode. And then there's a story behind it. So I definitely think that's the trend. Well, I guess that also brings to mind the current ways that we trace things. And RFID seemed like a huge breakthrough. And how is this a big step up from RFID? Uh, well, for the main thing, you can't put RFID inside of a product, right? So it, it's subject to whatever you're labeling. Um, so you can stick it on the outside of a container. You can stick it, um, you know, on the on the, the tag of an uh, a cow's ear or whatever, but it's not going to get inside of a product. Um, the sort of the other aspect of this, which uh, kind of goes into uh, the future products and, and where we see this going is, you know, by using these probiotics, it's actually, they're programmable, right? So, um, and they're multi-use. So we can have two in one products um, that do other things that, that these probiotics do as well. So um, whether that's sort of bio fertilizers or, or, uh, natural fungicides or biopreservatives um, that also offer this sort of tagging solution. Um, and that's stuff that, you know, electronics and, and digital technology uh, just can't integrate with right now. That's a really, really great point. It really ties back in with my question before, I guess, in that if somebody adulterated the product with 20%, you wouldn't know that by the RFID. The RFID just tells you where it started and where it's been. Yeah. But going, going to your last point about the idea of future products and applications, are there actually microbes that are probiotics for, say, for human use, but something that actually could be beneficial in the product itself to either retard spoilage or maybe uh, compete against what would be like, say, botulinum or something that would be something as a dangerous contaminant? Uh, you bet. I mean, I'll let Ellen kind of talk more in detail about it, but um, 100%. I mean, a lot of the organisms... Um, that we use, a lot of the microbes that we use um, are already being used in a lot of these supply chains for other things, whether that be, um, like as I mentioned, a natural fungicide or um, some sort of biopreservative or whatever it is. Um, the really important element of what we're building is we're piggybacking off of existing workflows for these companies as opposed to saying, hey, if you want to implement this, you've got to you know, build all of this new infrastructure. Um, and that's the case with something like, you know, we're not trying to compete against RFID. It's just a good reference. But, you know, th that's exactly what happens with a lot of these other track and trace technologies, which is you need you need more infrastructure. And this is seamlessly integrated with with the current workflows of that of that uh, supply chain and that manufacturer. So all this seems really great. But what are the competing technologies? Um, so, as, as you mentioned before, there are uh, one, maybe or two other companies that use sort of naked DNA or, or some sort of, of synthetic DNA to mark things. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, uh, that's not necessarily very robust. It's not, a, in my opinion, a, a fantastic solution. The biggest competitor that we see to, to what we're doing is a company that uses the natural uh, sort of pre-existing microbiome signature of areas to track um, products. So just to give you an example, and I don't know this company's technology very well, so you know, excuse me if I'm, I'm sort of misrepresenting this at all, but um, you've got a factory that's producing some widget in you know, whatever, China or Thailand or something. They get the sort of data set um, of that microbiome, sort of what it looks like. And then when that product comes here, they can test those pair of sneakers and say, 
yeah, that came from that factory. But, you know, in my opinion, that seems a really general um, because if you if if those pair of sneakers went to some other location or were adulterated in some way or whatever it is, uh, that's not something you'd be able to tell. Um, two, I, I believe that the microbiome can change uh, in some of these areas. I'm not sure how they account for that. So I kind of equate that from sort of gathering up electrons and hoping the internet sort of just forms or, you know, like it seems, it seems too general. But, but one thing they do kind of uh, discuss or talk about is the fact that, you know, the microbial um, data set is actually the largest data set in the world, which I do agree with. Um, but we are kind of taking a more uh, directed approach at that and saying, hey, yeah, microbes are everywhere. It's a fin- fantastic sort of middle layer between us and technology. And we can create and we can sort of leverage those microbes uh, to tag things. Um, so that, that, that's the key difference between us and, and I would say our leading competitor. That's really neat. And as we start getting into, you know, advanced ways of DNA detection and sequencing, it may not be a bridge too far to imagine that in 10 years, you'd be able to put a drop of honey into a machine on your on your uh, countertop and tell if it's the real thing. <laughs> oh, 100%. I think, you know, that's, that's what's wonderful about biology right now, which is, I think the next phase of synthetic biology or, or, or biotechnology is really going to w- ride the wave of computing. So, you know, as we approach the land of quantum computing and sort of the ability to just digest and analyze information instantly, that, you know, that's where we're headed 100%. Oh, yeah, no kidding. I, I feel like a fossil because I do so little coding and uh, programming already that, and I was good back in 2010, but if you don't use it every day, and uh, I feel like my survival as a scientist in this particular discipline, and you know, in areas of molecular biology and genomics, is going to be limited by my ability to either do it or hire really smart people who do it well. And so, you know, it, it's it's a really accelerating field, and uh, it's cool to see an application like yours. If people wanted to hear more about it or learn more about it, is there a place you could direct them to on social media or internet? Yeah, sure. I mean, our website is www.carverrr.com, and or they could follow us on Twitter, which is at Carver, C-A-R-V-E-R-R, Labs, at Carver Labs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah at Carver Labs. Okay, awesome. I'll definitely follow you there. I, I'm not currently, but I definitely will. So Dr. Ellen Jorgensen and Vishal Bouyan, uh, they're the co-founders of Carver, C-A-R-V-E-R-R. The extra R is for really cool science. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I use that for now on, yeah. It's our tagline. <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm the marketing arm of of, uh, of my of my wife's business, so you know, it's it, that, that's how it works. But thank you very much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kim. And as always, thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. As we approach a million downloads in 200 episodes, it's more exciting than ever for me to do this. So thank you for all your wonderful suggestions and for your wonderful reviews on iTunes. I think it makes a compelling case for why we should continue to do this as well as bring more people to listen. We're currently going through our highest downloads per week of all time, and I appreciate that very much. So thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast podcast and we'll talk to you again next week.
Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.